Hi, I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that you would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah, I think we've overcome some technical problems today. I don't know. We'll see how it sounds. I know. We're, you know, part of the problem with being amateur podcasters, aside from all the other problems. we're friggin' stupid. (laughs) We can't figure out. We're trying to figure out the technical stuff as we go. Yeah, we don't really know anything. No, we don't. Hey, but we have some good news to report that Matt... Ask a lawyer. He's not back this week, but we'll be back soon. He's just been very, very busy. Yes. We were worried that maybe he had gotten abducted or something. And um, Yeah. <laughs> and we have some other good news. My After weeks of anticipation, my cranky editor, Notes from a Cranky Editor podcast is dropping. Yes. And those episodes are actually only three or four minutes long. So yes. people should be able to listen to them without too much pain. I hope so. Yeah. And our our Groovy Tube <laughs> podcast will be at the end of the month. Yeah, so we'll figure that out. Yeah, yeah it's mid month now, so we may have a way to pre-subscribe. Yeah, I think if we do a trailer, we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll figure that out. So we have an update, another update, the in the continuous updates of the Sanborn on case. the Anthony Sanborn case. And that, if you don't remember, that was episode twenty-two, right? No. Yes. And the detective in the case, James Daniels, has turned over two more boxes of files related to the case that just happened to be in his attic. Well, I guess it's better than being in his attic than to disappear in one of those mysterious police department floods or fires. But, like, what what the fuck? That's all I can say. And Amy Fairfield... Oh, gee, I have all these... This shit. What else is in his attic? Amy Fairfield, Sanborn's attorney, filed a emergency motion for discovery because it was the AG that told her that the files were <laughs> and <laughs> that there were Sanborn materials found somewhere in amongst other materials. But yes, Daniels I, had I, done I, I remember that. So, like, what were the other materials? Though it makes you wonder about other cases. I know. And like, so she asked the court to order Daniels and anyone at the Portland Police Department who handled the materials to testify under oath in a special hearing, which has not been held yet. She filed with the AG's office, and I don't know if the AG has ruled on that yet. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, this case has uh, got and a lot the, of twists and turns, I tell you. It certainly does. And the um, Portland Press-Herald has submitted a detailed list of questions to Portland Police Chief Michael Soshuk about police records policy, Yeah. whether Daniels held original documents or copies, and whether the department now has a policy in place to prevent or restrict detectives or officers from taking home documents. In a brief reply, and this is from Press Herald story, in a brief reply, Shawshuck declined to comment on the matter. Quote, the police department won't be commenting on any aspect of the Sanborn case while it is working its way through the courts. You know, they were asking a general question just about police records. No shit. And if we won't go through all the details of the case, but if you want to know more and haven't listened, we have not only episode 22, but also we had an update episode Yes, a bonus episode. And we will definitely have to do a full episode. But it's so hard because things keep coming up, so it's almost like we want to wait until it I know, things keep changing. And we'll definitely have more more stuff. We're going to dig a little into the background. I'm going to take another trip up to our great Maine State Library and Archives 
and look at some old newspapers. You know, one of the things is people forget a lot of this stuff isn't on the World Wide Web, the information superhighway, because it happened before it was all, everything was going on there. So, do we have anything else we have to talk about before getting into today's story? I don't think so. Okay, well, today we're doing something a little different in that there's probably not even a crime involved, but there was a lot of speculation that there was a crime oh, involved. It's kind of mysterious. So, it's a, it's more of a mystery that, than a crime. Well, we don't We, we are crime and stuff. It's so more, but it's still, still very interesting. I think people find it intriguing. And since it happened in England... It made international news, but I don't know how much news it made in the United States. It was about 10 years ago, so we'll see. And before I start today, a note, much of the information in today's episode comes from the documentary Dreams of a Life by Carol Morley. Hmm. And you won't find it streaming, you have to rent it from Amazon. Wow. And once you rent it, you have 30 days to start watching it, but once you watch it, you only have it for three days. Oh, that's weird. So there's stuff I miss. I think that's how they do the rentals. So oh, there's stuff I missed. Kind of like old-style blockbuster. And if you watch it, you have to watch carefully because there's no spoken narration and comments of friends and coworkers who they don't identify mm. is interspersed with notes on morally, I guess, a whiteboard timeline that's just, for me at least, chaotic. So you're trying to process what you're supposed to be looking at on this as they slip in this ah. whiteboard timeline and stuff, and then it goes back to the people talking, and part of it was I was taking notes, so it was hard to... And so there are things like you wouldn't know, for instance, that she put one ads out looking for people who knew this woman unless you were watching and saw the ads flash ah. on the screen. And then there's other things in here that you wouldn't know who some of the people were or who she was talking to or when things took Are place. Are you able to, when you run it, can you watch it more than once? Or? You can. Yeah, you can okay. watch it as much as you want during three days, but I had other stuff going on. I haven't mm-hmm. checked back to see if it actually disappeared. I'd like to watch it again just to fill in some blanks. Yeah. I had to go actually look on IMBD and figure out who some of the people oh, in it wow. were. So, there's important information that's never said out loud, and I miss some of it while taking notes. I hate it when they don't have a little, just a little thing on the bottom of my Well, it's so. her, I guess it's her decision as an artist yeah, to do her documentary that abs. way. But it's hard, you're given... What else was I just watching recently? They were doing that too. But you give the audience a lot of credit for paying attention. Mm. Like, I know, like, you say that you do shit when you're watching stuff. You can't watch this and do anything but look at the screen. Well, that's why I didn't watch that one that... There was one recently that I saw that looked really good, but it was, was it Israeli? Too hard. Yeah, with the subtitles. Yeah. There was another podcast. Which is fine. I, yeah, I'm one of those people that <laughs> when I'm watching, I usually it's saw funny. or something. I was listening to another podcast another podcast a few weeks ago where they were discussing this, and you'd think some of those people had never seen subtitles before in their life. Mm-hmm. And, really. Yeah. yeah. I find when something's done well and it has subtitles, after a while you don't. No, the subtitles don't bother you, me. You, if I'm you, in you a forget. movie theater or something, it doesn't bother me at all. If I'm just sitting and watching, but if I'm doing something, right? I'm watching. Well, sometimes when you watch something, like, and I would suggest if you're going to watch this documentary, that you need to just commit yourself to watching it. Okay. And, and pay, if you do it, it costs me like $2.99. Oh. I don't know. Now into the documentary. Okay. And actually there were some reviews of it. Though. And was this a suggestion? 
I wasn't this a suggestion? By oh, a, I forgot to by a listener. Yes, it was a loyal Amber listener. Amber Knight, who has a podcast, Black Girl Watching. Yeah, and she suggested this topic to us. And by the way, I highly recommend her. Podcast. Yes, I like her podcast. So Joyce Carol Vincent was a beautiful young woman, both inside and out. Friends remembered she had a lovely singing voice, good enough to be professional. At least that's what most thought. She was always well put together, though she didn't spend a lot of money on quote-unquote stuff. She was bubbly and fun, smart and professional, both friends and co-workers said. But she also didn't talk much about her past or her life. She had a tendency to drop out of sight or disengage, avoid contact, and not respond to those reaching out. She moved a lot and didn't contact people to let them know where she was. Her private life was compartmentalized. I always know when I put a big word like that and that I'm going to compartmentalize. And friends who were close didn't know other friends who were close. Her love Mm. life, men were constantly after her, was a mystery to many. Mm. So when she dropped out of sight in 2003, no one was overly concerned except for her family. And when a woman's largely decomposed remains were found in a London... Were found in a London... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's all right. We're found in a London bed set, and that's a studio apartment for those ah. of you in the U.S. Or maybe a studio with, like, a kitchen off to the side. It's never clear to me. Okay. And, of course, in the reenactments in the video, it looked like a regular apartment. Because I'm like, what? It's a bed set. It, it, and I know I've read that over the years. We have lots of U.K. listeners. You can email us. And- I assume it's a studio apartment, yeah. like the bed and sitting room are one yeah, room. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, that would make sense, right? It's not that I've never heard that before. Yes. I've just never had to explain it to anyone yes. else. Yeah. But her remains were found. She had been lying on a couch. She was surrounded by wrapped Christmas presents and shopping bags, as if she had been Christmas shopping and wrapping the presents. The TV and heat were still on. Food rotted in the kitchen and in the refrigerator. And many of those friends didn't even realize, even after newspaper articles reported her name, that she was the Joyce Vincent that they knew. It just didn't seem possible that the woman they knew would come to that kind of end. But when you think about it, it really did. So here's the story of Joyce Carol Vincent. And most of this comes from the 2011 documentary by Carol Morley, Dreams of a Life. Morley is the same age as Vincent, lost a parent as a child at the same age Vincent Hmm. did, and even lived on a street near where Vincent did growing up. So she was captivated by her story. Little was known about Vincent when her remains were found. So Morley spent years, including putting ads on buses and in newspapers, asking, did you know Joyce Carol Vincent, learning who she was. Other information in this documentary, by the way, comes from the Scotland Herald out of Glasgow and two articles Morley did for The Guardian. There wasn't a lot. Other press and stuff attempted, apparently, to do articles and just didn't get very far. When Vincent's remains were found, neighbors of the bed sit in an apartment complex above a shopping center in Herringay, which apparently is a very busy and populated area of London, had sometimes smelled a foul odor that they attributed to garbage in, in the garbage cans or bins, so I assume that's garbage cans or dumpsters, in the yeah. years between 2003 and 2006. One neighbor saw black bugs coming in and yeah. out. Coming in and out of a slightly... Sorry. There's going to be more moments like that, okay? Coming so. in and out of a slightly open window of the bed set. In the hallway, if you happen to be there, it wasn't really a hallway, it was open air, you could hear the constant noise from the TV. 
The bedsit, though, was at the end of an open walkway with only one neighboring apartment and no apartments above or below it. Many residents there didn't think what they saw, heard, or smelled was unusual enough to make a fuss. So it was like motel or something type of thing. It was a big apartment complex. Yeah, Yeah, but it was... outside entries. Right. The entry was outside and hers was at the end and Uh it was a weirdly configured space so that she had really no immediate neighbors, Mm -hmm. which was probably, seemed like a good thing at the time. Oh, yeah, well... But the heat and electricity were regularly paid through automatic withdrawals from Ah. the tenant's bank account. Mail was through a slot in her door, so when it piled up inside, no one saw that it was piling Mm -hmm. up. The rent itself was paid partially by the housing association. So finally it became so behind, they decided to repossess. And it was over 2,000 pounds behind. It had taken a long time to get behind because half was being paid by this housing association. When bailiffs broke down the double-locked door on January 26, 2006, they found a mountain of mail behind the door, food rotting in the kitchen, I think I mentioned that, and a body so badly decomposed it was fusing with the couch and carpet. Ah! I knew you were going to But like what it. about, okay. With, and carpet in the main room. But, like, besides that, I can't, I can't even process that part right now. But, like, I'm surprised there would be any food left. Like, it would be well, so decomposed. Rotting. But, I like, know. I don't know if this was a reenactment. I don't know <laughs> that there was food. It was hard. Another issue with this documentary where there were crime scene photos, it was hard to tell. Obviously, the people coming into the apartment and stuff was a reenactment or going through the stuff in their... <sighs> Those suits they wear in, in ew, England, ew, ew, ew. you know, yeah. those full body Hazmat suits. Thingy, yeah. yeah, when they're at a crime scene going, ew, ew, gross, kind of thing. They weren't saying that, but it, uh, that was they their They probably were in real life. Or whatever they say in whatever they say in England. But there were photos that were obvious crime scene photos, and then they kind of merge into the reenactment. But like there was a a bottle of milk on the counter, and it was like, like, you know, yeah, I bet, gross. Yeah, yeah, it must have been interesting. Yes. She was identified through dental records, and the coroner could see no obvious cause of death. She was asthmatic and had other health issues, Hmm. so it was determined, since the door was locked from the inside, she'd probably died of natural causes. The TV was on to BBC One, and police determined from unopened mail and expiration dates on food that she had died sometime in December of 2003. Wow, three years. So this was three years and a month. The last anyone had reportedly seen her was when she went to the hospital in November 2003, vomiting blood. Ah. She, She was diagnosed with a peptic ulcer and was hospitalized for two days. Hmm. When the hospital asked her to make a note of her closest contact, next of kin, we say, but they showed the note on the thing and it said, who are you closest to? She wrote down the name of her bank manager. Vincent had recently moved to the bedsit and she was located there by a domestic violence shelter where she had briefly stayed. Her family and the local MP, member of parliament, asked for an investigation, but police found no sign of foul play. The cause of death was ruled unascertained, and law enforcement moved on, though the case remains open if anything ever comes up. Little was written about who Vincent was at the time. Her family cooperated with police, but wouldn't talk to the press. Her neighbors didn't know her. Morley, the filmmaker, talked to local press, who said they tried to pursue a story, but didn't have the resources to take it far enough to find anything. The story initially got a lot of attention for its salacious Mm -hmm. and, you know, graphic issues and just the horror of somebody decomposing for three Mm -hmm. years, but it quickly disappeared. And one journalist in the Scotland Herald did point out that it's 
I'm not going to say it's not rare, but bodies have been found before, yeah. but they're usually homeless people. And the shocking thing about this was it was a woman in her 30s surrounded by Christmas presents. Yeah, so and obviously she had friends. You stuff. would think. Because there was one sidebar, but the one in Maine that was dead for I don't know how many years in right. her home. And her, but she didn't have any family. Right. And she, she didn't had, have any. She was a loner. So, well, you'll see with Joyce okay. Carol Vincent. But I'm just I saying think the part lady of, in Maine was... Yes, she, and understand. she had cut herself off from yes. people. And part of the thing is, a perception would be, and she was, what, in her 50s? Yes, she right? was older than that. She was like 60. So a perception is, okay, maybe somebody who's older would do that, but yes. a woman in her 30s. I mean, a lot of this is about people's perception yes. of people and how they behave. Okay. And that, to me, that I find that's what's interesting about the story. But Morley read about it in a newspaper on the subway shortly after it happened. Quote, The image of the television flickering over the decomposing body yeah. haunted me as I got off the train onto the crowded platform. In a city such as London, home to 8 million people, how could someone's absence go unnoticed for so long? Who was Joyce Vincent? What was she like? How could she have been forgotten? And she wrote this in a 2011 article in The Guardian when her film first came out. She wrote, Joyce Vincent was 38 when she died, had been born in West London, and that some of her family had attended her inquest. Some reports suggested Joyce was or had been engaged to be married, and that before living in the bedsit, she had been in a refuge for victims of domestic violence. But she didn't fit the typical profile of someone who might die and be forgotten. She wasn't old without family. She wasn't a loner or an overdose drug addict. Nor was she an isolated heavy drinker. Who she was and the circumstances of her death were a mystery. Morley talked shortly after to Lynn Featherstone, the MP for Hornsey and Wood Green, Joyce's constituency, who had wanted the police to reopen the investigation into Joyce's death, but the police felt there was nothing more to investigate. And I think Joyce's yeah, family well. was in that, too. Vincent was born October 19, 1965, in Hammersmith, which is oh, an area of London. she's the same age as me. Yeah, she is. Ooh, so you must feel like yeah, a special connection. This could I have do. happened to you. I always think of Hammersmith because of the Hammersmith Odeon. Like, that's where, like, Bruce Springsteen played one of his first big concerts in 1975. Uh, okay. Her parents were from Grenada, but her mother was originally from India. She was the youngest of five girls and longed to be a pop singer, according to childhood friends. Her mother died when she was 11, and she was largely raised by her sisters. Her father, a carpenter, wasn't around a lot and seemed to be unreliable. She sometimes referred to him to friends as pork pie because he wore a pork pie hat. Ah. And oddly, she told co-workers at Ernst & Young in 2001 that he had died and even took some time off work, when in actuality he didn't die until 2004, after she did. Interesting. Yes. She attended Malcolm Primary School and Fulham Gilead School for Girls and left school at age 16 with no qualifications and didn't go to college. Hmm. And I apologize here because there was a lot of discussion on the documentary about O-levels and I-levels or E-levels or A-levels, that type of thing in the film involving the British education system that I've never been able to understand, despite my obsessive reading of British mystery novels yeah. over the past 45 years. <laughs> yeah, but they're usually older, so they're not. I know. The well, sometimes I have it in my test. mind, okay, one of these levels means you're going to college. One of these levels means you're like going to trade or getting a trade, but I can't keep them straight. But in any case, it, she was out of school in her late teens. Hmm. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Despite her apparently unimpressive post-secondary education history, by 20, she was working as a secretary to the boss at a shipping company where her first 
apparent serious boyfriend Martin Lister work. She also worked at one time for the advertising firm Satchy and Satchy and finally ended up working in the Treasury Department for the accounting firm Ernst & Young with a responsible job moving money around, co-workers told Interesting. Morley. She dated Martin Lister beginning when she was 20. He seems to have been in his late 20s or early 30s at the time they started dating. He said she pursued him and he didn't realize she wanted to date. He's a portly, very white guy, even in photos from 1985 when they first started dating. His friends couldn't believe the two were dating because he just seemed like such an unlikely boyfriend for her. Because she, she was very attractive. She was a very beautiful black woman, just very striking and beautiful and well put together. And he was, she was very classy. And his friends seemed to imply he's something of a schlub. And he certainly, he's certainly not tall, dark, and handsome. He seems like a nice enough guy on the documentary but he's definitely... He had something she liked. Well, friends and co-workers' information in the film sometimes contradicts itself, which is understandable, as you'll see. Several things are consistent themes. Joyce Vincent didn't say much about her personal life and past, even to those she had relationships with. She was well put together, but not a great housekeeper. Mm. She didn't spend a lot of money and had few possessions. She moved frequently, and she tended to take on the interests of whatever man she was dating. Hmm... She didn't really have her own interests, said Martin, who dated her for about three years in the mid-1980s and then maintained on and off contact with her until a year or so before her death. He even helped her move several times after they were no longer a couple. Hmm. He said she always had a couple garbage bags full of, or shopping bags or something full of her stuff, and that was it. And he said she took on the persona of whoever she happened That's to be with. Weird. It's kind of sad, yeah. She was a chameleon, said Alistair Abrahams, who she lived with for two years in the late 1980s, early 1990s. He said she adapted her interests to him and, quote, wasn't a person with a past and certainly wasn't a person with a future. And I'm not sure if he meant when he knew her, he didn't think she had a future, oh, or, maybe or he if he was just, just spec, yeah, spec because she because had been found dead. She died, yeah. That's a weird thing to say. Martin and others who worked with her and were childhood friends in the film said she'd worked on her elocution and didn't have a working class accent. Some were surprised that she came from where she did. Ah. Some that of the probably helped her get to where she it got. Probably though. did. Yeah. And that was important to her. Some of the focus of people's perception on her in the documentary was about race. And you feel almost that as a black woman, she was judged pretty much by everyone in ways that she may not have been if her gender or definitely race had been different. She seemed mostly to date white men, but a black female friend points out it wasn't so much color, but she liked the professional corporate type. She was wanted to move up. She dated Martin for three years and was close to his group of friends, though there were questions about her life that no one that none of them had answers to. One example of the bigger picture was her twenty first birthday party. And <laughs> the reenactment of this is funny. Yeah. But a stripper dressed as a vicar showed up. A really skinny, red-headed, white guy who wasn't built like you'd want a stripper to be built. <laughs> and she was mortified. I would have been. No one could figure out who had called him. Some of Martin's friends in the documentary thought maybe he had. Martin thought it was Choice's sisters, though no one can remember any of her sisters being at this party. What? Everyone remembers how really, really mortified Joyce was. Someone threw food at the guy and hit him in the chest with clotted cream, which got him really riled up. I wouldn't have been happy if I were The reenactment is fairly funny, and everyone remembers it with a laugh, but it's interesting that everyone's memory of it also includes how unhappy Joyce was and how no one was really sure who hired the guy. And maybe this is a British thing, but no one seemed to delve into it or ask her. 
or ask or find out who did it at the time or talk about it. Many from different groups of friends say that when her sisters would call her up, she wouldn't want to talk to them. But they also say she loved her nieces and nephews and loved spending time with them. Hmm. In the late 1980s, when she started dating Abrahams, her sphere changed from Martin and his white group of blaggers, as one of them calls. Yeah, and I, I felt like that was a phrase... For um, just people who just fucked around and Maybe. were... Just like um, slacker types. Yeah. Okay. As one friend described them, to a more sophisticated and diverse group that revolved around the music world. Abrahams, who's black, makes the point in the documentary that Joyce had dated a lot of white men before him. You've had a lot of boyfriends, he said he told her when they started their two-year relationship. Now you finally got a man. Oh, God. Yeah, he's Get a little full of himself. But... Alton Edwards who had a pop hit in 1982 and was a member of that group, says he doesn't believe that she dated Abrahams because he was black, but more that he was a stepping stone. I don't think she was into the race thing, says Edwards, who's also black. I don't think she was into black or white. She just wanted to go places. Hmm. Well, with Abrahams, she met some big names in the music world, and it's possible she did see him as a stepping stone. Many of her friends said she still held those childhood dreams of being a singer. Abraham says, I introduced her to Benny King. He was a manager, a music manager. Who, Benny King was? Abraham's. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I introduced her to Benny King's, and the next day she bought his album. He told Morley, and this was in the Guardian article. It wasn't in the documentary that I could see. After I'd introduced her to Gil Scott Heron, when she met him again, she had this wonderful knowledge of him. She was asking him questions about the civil rights movement and the revolution will not be televised. Many of those in the documentary talk about what a great voice she had. She wasn't afraid to get up and perform, and a landlord, Kirk Thorne, a musician, even made a demo tape of her. One interesting side fact. If you Google Kirk Thorne, which I did because I was trying to figure out who he was for this, the documentary being what it is, you can find Carol Morley's 2007 ad on the Trinidad and Tobago News bulletin board looking for him. Quote, I am a filmmaker looking for musician Kirk Thorne who lived in Shadwell in London. His record of Party for Two, Mr. Magic, was released in the Mm. early 90s. Any information on how I could contact him? Thanks so much. In any case, Abrahams, however, laughs at the thought of Vincent as a singer. I told her she wasn't a singer, he said. So, way to step on those dreams, Mr. Abrahams. Hmm, Interesting. Anyone can be a singer if their voice is good enough. Yeah, or even train them to do it. Yeah, that's true. Some people said she looked. They played some music, and this was another issue I had. I know she made a demo tape. In the Guardian article, Morley said Thorne couldn't find it, but knew he had it, so he was going to find it when she first talked Uh to him. It's not clear on the film until you get to the credits, and even the credits were hard to read whether you're listening to her or not. Uh. They play one song sung by a woman for almost its entire length, and I think it's her, but I'm not sure. Interesting. Was she a good singer? And they show a reenactment of her singing. I don't know. Who who am I to judge who's a good singer and who isn't? I just know what I like. Some people said she looked like Whitney Houston. Others said Chardet. I kind of wonder if some of that is just the habit people have of comparing a beautiful black woman who sings to other beautiful black women who sing. Looking at the few photos available of her, she's very striking and beautiful, but I don't see a close resemblance to either one of those women, except for some very general features in common. Alistair Abrahams is a little cruel at times in his assessment of Joyce, and really full of himself. 
For instance, they were dating in 1990 when there was a big Nelson Mandela tribute at Wembley Stadium. Alistair recounts how he desperately wanted to meet Mandela. It was very, very important to him. I think he's originally from Zimbabwe or somewhere like that. But he wasn't able to meet him at that event. It looked like it was just a cluster. Wow. Cluster. No, let me finish the story. When he saw Joyce later, she couldn't wait to tell him, I met Mandela. She just happened to be in the room where he was, Abraham says, with the implication that she wasn't nearly as interested in meeting Mandela as he was. Well, who could and then be? he says to the camera, how unfair. Oh, poor baby. I know. Alton Edwards says that Vincent's reaction to meeting Mandela would have been the same if it had been Princess Diana, that she didn't have a sense of history or race, but more that she was wowed by the glamour and fame that surrounded the event. And, and I'm that sure he there was, were a bunch of people hanging around. I'm sure, and, and that she was... Kissing his And butt. one very interesting thing about the documentary, and you wouldn't really know this unless you read the Guardian article as well, which I'll link to our website. Sometimes I get around to linking that stuff like a week after the yeah, thing is done, just so people know if they go look for it and it's not there. But that somebody mentioned to Carol Morley while she was doing the documentary that there was a glimpse of Joyce in the documentary about Mandela at Wembley ah. Stadium. And so Morley watched it frame by frame, couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. And then near the very, very end, there's this crowded room of people. And it's almost like it's kind of eerie. Joyce turns around. To, to talk to somebody behind her, then turns back, and then turns around again. And that little clip is in the the um, this documentary. Wow. But it's funny the contrast between Martin Lister, her boyfriend of the mid-80s, and Alistar, the one of the late 80s, early 90s. And they see, they're the two men, at least in the film, who seem to have the longest relationships with her. Morley said she was contacted by a lot of boyfriends who... Um, just wanted to, basically to get information from her and didn't want to be in the documentary or talk or anything. But these two guys talked a lot. Both say she was their true love. Uh, that's weird. And Martin says Joyce wanted to marry him, but he wasn't ready to be tied down. His friend, John Iowano, and I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, I think it's a Greek name, actually. He's when His nickname has the word Greek in it. They all had nicknames for each other when they were hanging around as a blaggers. group. Yeah, because they're blaggers. Well, her mm-hmm. nickname, I, I'm i under the impression they cho- chose their own. Hers was Rachel Prejudice. Hmm. I, I don't... Okay. But he says that Martin's father judged the relationship and the implication is because of uh, her color. And, yeah. and he implies Martin capitulated to that. Alistar says he loved her, quote, but I didn't think she thought she was capable of loving, of being happy. Yeah, it's all her fault. Yeah, except for her work life for Ernst & Young in the late 1990s until she left there in 2001. A lot of her life in the 90s isn't clear. After she broke up with Abraham, there's a lot of people who knew her in the 80s and Abrahams and that group who knew her in the late 80s, early 90s. And then most of the information is from people she worked with at Ernst & Young, which would have been from about 1997 to 2001. Huh. And they only knew her as a co-worker. But she and Abrahams parted ways. Morley couldn't find many to talk to her about those years, except those at Ernst & Young. And I'm I'm just inferring that from the documentary. Okay. Nobody, because there's no narration, no one says it, and I may have missed whiteboard notes. But the hmm. whiteboard notes in the documentary refer to a Polish boyfriend in 1996 who harassed her by leaving post-it notes all over the apartment. And the BBC filed a freedom of information request with the police department, and they cited a 1998 domestic incident over 
financial matters that didn't involve violence or injury, and that's the only domestic they have on record involving her. Hmm. And that was in 1998. One troubling aspect, and it's focused on a lot more by her female friends in the documentary than her male friends, is the aggressively predatory behavior of men towards her. Hmm. Everyone remarks about how men flock to her. The men talk about there a lot about... There's some women like that. I had a friend that was like that who was pretty, but she wasn't necessarily prettier than anyone else, but there was something about her that men were drawn to. Well, I there was definitely something about... I mean, she was beautiful, but I think her personality, she was very bubbly and vivacious, and she also... She was a little flirtatious. But and, the way of kind of adapting herself to yes. whoever she was that, yes. that i'm sure that is made men feel that you know, she made him feel important she really attracted attention says mandy allen a friend of hers in the late 80s she was there i think mandy allen may have been a roommate of hers for a while as well she was their complete focus it was hard to get rid of them because they wouldn't take no for an answer hmm. and apparently joyce had trouble getting rid of them because she wanted to be friendly and liked her co-workers at Ernst & Young recall one time hustling her into a cab when they were all out at a pub or a nightclub or something because a man in a bar wouldn't leave her alone. Maybe she attracted a, a certain type. She, I, she seems to have. Yeah. Except for Martin, who seemed, but that was when she was 20. But she pursued him. Some recall how she'd walked out of several jobs without giving reasons, but Martin says she'd often leave after someone on the job, quote-unquote, pestered her. He seems to mean sexually harassed Probably. her. And I find not to, this isn't a criticism, it's just different ways of communicating. I find there's a lot of British understatement in this documentary. But he seems to mean, and he would know more than a lot of people because he often, she often called him to help her move. He wasn't, I read one article that said he, and it was an article about the documentary that said he hadn't seen her for years and years, but that's not true. After they broke up, they were frequently in touch, and especially when she needed help moving, he was always there for her to do stuff like that. But rather than her complain about being sexually harassed on the job, she just quit the job. John, Martin's friend... The Greek guy? Yeah, said he's often wondered if she'd been sexually abused as a child. Mm-hmm. Quote, she was almost a perfect example of someone who'd been interfered with. As a child. Yes. He's Another understatement. Yes, yeah. I get it. And I wish he had given some more, or the filmmaker had asked for elaboration or yeah, details. Yeah, well, how do you know how, that? What is she a perfect, how is she a perfect example? But I think part of it is her closed-offness, but also her people-pleasing. Like Martin at one yes. point says she was, It's he says it sounds like a contradiction, but she was very trusting, but didn't trust anyone. Yeah. But something happened, it's obvious, in 2001, to set her on a spiral that would end with her death. And this is my own, against it's my own inference. You just have to put the pieces together from the documentary. When she left Ernst & Young in March of 2001, it was a surprise to her co-workers. One story she told was that she was traveling with a group of 20. Another was that she'd been <laughs> recruited by headhunters to go somewhere else. It was shortly before she left that she told co-workers her father had died when he had it and she took time off because of that. Hmm. Around that time, too, Mandy Allen, who hadn't seen her for some time, and this is the woman who had been roommates with her in the late 80s, early 90s during the Alistair Abrahams era, saw her in the street and called out to her. And Vincent hurried away, and she actually kind of went after her and said, Joyce, Joyce! And Vincent just scurried right away from her. Oh, that's weird. And it's also around this time she became estranged from her family. Hmm. At some point, she called up Abrahams and said she wanted to get back together, but he said no, he had moved on. 
In late 2001, she showed up at Martin's with her things. He asked if she was in trouble, and she said no, but she'd sold her laptop for money, and he figured she was. She wouldn't tell him what was going on. She stayed on his couch, and the weeks dragged on. It turned 2002, and she ended up staying a good six months, he said. She told him she was working in the city, but he said she'd changed, and she didn't look as well turned out as she used to. Her character was really different, he said. She was trying to be the same, but she wasn't. Hmm. One day after he left for work, he returned home because he'd forgotten something or something like that, and she'd come back. She said she wasn't feeling well, but he had the impression she wasn't working, and she was just waiting for him to leave so that she could come back home yeah. to his yeah. to his place. Shortly after that, he came home one day, and she was just gone, and he never heard from her again. Interesting. He later found a pay stub that showed she'd been working for a cleaning company. At some point, according to various accounts, she worked as a cleaner for a budget motel in Haringey in 2002. Martin's friend, John, said she also showed up at his place around then and stayed for a few weeks on the couch. He says nothing happened between them, but it could have if he had let it. The tension, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah right. mm-hmm. The tension was building. He said she, if she got more comfortable with being there, she'd walk around in her underwear and stuff like that. that. Mean and she wanted to have sex with you, buddy. Yeah. Get over yourself. The tension was building, and when one day she was just gone, he was relieved that she had left. Hmm. Her sisters at one point had hired a private investigator to find her. Now, her sisters didn't talk for this documentary and have never talked to the press, but this apparently came from the police. And the private investigator, I'd ask for my money back, tracked her to the apartment where she was later found dead, apparently, but the door was locked and he couldn't make contact with her, and that was the end of that. My guess is by that time she was already dead. I know, that's interesting. So I'm assuming he told the sisters where she lived, maybe. Yes, but nobody could contact her, and I think the assumption was she just was, as we say now, ghosting. Yeah. You know, she just didn't want to be bothered and she wanted to be left alone, and that wasn't abnormal for her. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it. I mean, yeah. Friends, once they got over the shock of how her life ended, have a lot of theories about what happened. Mandy Allen says that she wouldn't be surprised if Joyce was being battered and had isolated herself because of it, Mm -hmm. the way a lot of women do. She said, given Vincent's personality, that's how she would react to that type of thing. Sounds good. The yeah. fact Vincent had ended up in a domestic violence shelter doesn't surprise Mandy Ellen because of the way men acted toward her. She said they were so focused, so possessive. Hmm. John wonders too and says maybe one last bad relationship was, quote, serious enough to make her disappear. Abrahams, who perhaps has the harshest assessment overall of Vincent in the film, says that she was emotionally retarded and unable to grow up. Joyce died alone because she wanted to be alone, he said. She's got to take responsibility for a lot of that. Well, she's dead, so she doesn't really right. have to take. Right, <laughs> no, that's true. Martin seems to be the most affected by what happened to her. I wish she'd rung me because I would have helped because I love you, he says. Aww. He says towards the end of the film, breaking down. His friend John says she made all the wrong choices. But then he adds, we've all made stupid choices in our life, but hers were tragic. Since Vincent's remains were found, and since the film as well, there have been the reactions you'd expect particularly the hand-wringing about what have we become? Mm. And those who see it as a kind of modern-day Kitty Genovese story, mm. no which, one caring as someone which dies. Which we know isn't true anyway. Which we know now isn't true anyway. Morley, in her 2011 Guardian article, said when she first heard about it, how does someone in a city of 8 million disappear and no one notice? I would think it would be a lot easier mm. to disappear in a city of 8 say, million, yeah, though, yes, than one of 8,000. Yeah. 
A writer in the Glasgow Herald, and this was in the first person, but I couldn't find a byline, and it may be Alison Campsey, who is in the film, who isn't identified, but had a Scottish accent. I think it was Scottish, and was obviously a journalist. But she wrote, and I think this is her, but again, there was no byline on this Glasgow, uh, Scotland Herald, I think, story, so I don't want to totally attribute it to her. But the story of Joyce Vincent is most shocking when you realize it could happen to any one of us. There is nothing anywhere to say we couldn't fall through life's fragile weave, just like she did. People don't ask to become estranged from their families or be abused by their partner. Homelessness is not a life choice made by many. Losing love and self-esteem are not things that we want to happen, but sometimes they just do. And I agree with that, much more so than the aphorisms about society not caring Mm. and, oh, how can we do this to each other? I also find an opinion piece Morley wrote in 2012 about both Vincent and the death of a young homeless woman, Michelle Conroy, who'd been couch surfing and had been living in a tent when she was killed when a tree fell on it during a storm, Ah. more to the point. And I guess there was a lot of hand-wringing about that, too, that this woman, this young woman who had been living in a tent. And Morley writes, Joyce was given sole tenancy of a housing association flat after residing in a domestic violence unit and subsequently was seemingly forgotten by local authorities, while her friends and family didn't know where she was. In response to my film, many people have written to me about their struggles with social isolation and those of people they know. At the heart of these stories is a sense of dislocation. There are many examples of people feeling too proud to seek help or struggling to locate assistance even if they are moved to search for it. People have the right to cut themselves off from society, to live lives that are off the grid, but for those that are at risk, there must be more resources to try to prevent unneeded suffering. There is a vital need for more options for homeless people, including more drop-in shelters and hostels that don't require registration. And if people are eventually suitably housed, there must be greater support as they get grips to grips with independent living. Although Joyce died alone, I have never known if she was lonely, just as I don't know if Michelle was lonely. But I am certain of this, Joyce Vincent and Michelle Conroy were marginalized and socially isolated by their housing conditions, and that wasn't their own doing. That's true. And I feel what Morley wrote is just as true here in the U.S. as England, that in a lot of ways Vincent's situation isolated her more than she isolated herself, and there didn't seem to be a safety net for that, though we don't know a lot of the particulars of what happened or why she ended up where she was. No, yeah. It's, it's odd to me that the private investigator, by the way, made it all the way to her door, so must have understood how she got the flat, but that's where it ended. Granted, he couldn't make contact, but it just seems like it should have gone somewhere from I there. know. And I know she was probably dead by then, but I don't know. It's just weird that... And it is weird. I think, too, that people don't understand how easily things can spiral in a direction that Vincent probably hadn't planned, no matter what her how she interacted with people or her need to be distant or whatever. All of her friends were expressing surprise that the person they knew, for instance, at Ernst and Young or wherever, you know, the people Martin and his friends knew in the 80s and Alistair and his friends knew in the late 80s, they all expressed surprise that she was in a bedsit provided by a domestic abuse shelter. And that just shows how unaware people are about how fragile the structure you build your life around is. And it's funny, it reminded me a little of after I left my job last fall. And it's not the same, obviously, situation at all. And I was delivering phone books to make some extra money. 
and I had made a remark on Facebook, not, oh, poor me, I'm delivering phone books or anything. I think it was more of some philosophical thing about phone books. But someone responded to something I put on there, just astounded, what the hell has happened to you? You were a newspaper editor, and now you're delivering phone like, books. Thanks. And they just couldn't make the connection. And, well, no, I didn't I feel insulted by it, but I'm like, well, this is obviously someone who doesn't know me, doesn't know what I'm doing, and has this superficial idea of this type of person should be here and doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not in any way comparing my situation to Joyce Vincent's, but it's easy to see how one job loss, one divorce, mm-hmm. one maybe in her situation, really bad relationship, or in anybody's, can combine with other things, and before you know it, you're where she was. Well, if you're estranged from your family, who do you You don't have, have a support net at all. But I used to watch Hoarders all the time. <laughs> And I remember one episode, and this is always this is stuck in my mind enough. I've put it in at least one of my books and it paraphrased it or used it differently. But I remember one episode where they found a homeless guy in a little encampment in this huge overgrown yard they were clearing out, and he wasn't the homeowner or oh anything. He had he had an encampment, and um, he was using a bucket as a toilet, which is yeah. relevant to the story. And Matt, the guy in Hoarders, who I always liked. I can't remember. I got the two Hoarders. Hoarders, and then there was Hoarding the... Right. So this was whatever one the guy, Matt, Matt, the organizer was on. But Matt, who I always... He was always my favorite one of those, said something like, we're all only five or six bad decisions away from shitting in a bucket. And I've always thought that. That's very profound. Yes, it is. And I think, too, her issues were exasperated. See, me and my big words were exacerbated by were exacerbated (laughs) (laughs) sorry fuck me were exacerbated her issues weren't helped by her personality (laughs) see i can write big words i just can't say them she seems kind of like Bryn Spector last week. Yes, I was thinking. Not to Spector, have, Bryn, Bryn, Hartman. Bryn Hartman. She seems like Bryn Hartman last week to have really not had a solid feeling for who she was. She was casting about. For instance, some people who want to be singers work their asses off doing everything they have to do to make it in the music world. It seems like she was more hoping to do it through knowing the right people. Yeah. And again, we don't know all the details of her life, but none of those friends in the 80s or anything said, boy, she was going to audition. She yeah. was singing voice lessons. She was, um, you know, trying to get jobs singing. She was singing in a nightclub. None of that stuff was going on. And it's the same, her friend Mandy said, how she was always looking for corporate type guys to date. Yeah. You know, to... And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying it illustrates kind of a superficial view of the world and how the world works. And it's possible that because of, maybe it, it is hard being beautiful, I don't know, but that we'll never know. you're afforded <laughs> sometimes right or wrong, you're, you're afforded more, and maybe it's the converse part of that too, that um, you're afforded more benefits, at least superficially and initially, because of how you look yeah. than the than the content of who you are. It reminds me of that Andy Richter episode. Oh, uh, yeah. There's that secret club for really good-looking people. <laughs> yeah. That was so funny. But I think a big factor that it's not overlooked in the film, but it's not nearly emphasized enough is that she seemed fair game for men and had issues dealing with that. And I'm not blaming her at all for that. It's funny though. It's interesting that that's what a lot of people talked about with her and, and yet they were surprised. Yeah. But also the fact that it happened to her so often and like the friend I mentioned, it wasn't predatory men. It was just, it seemed all men just always drawn to her. But 
But when all are, the predatory ones are too, oh, and they true. tend and they to be more, yeah, and they don't that, give up. That's, that's part that's of being true. predatory. And it seems as though her need to fit in probably clashed with her being prey for predatory men. And it's men. funny, she had that need to fit in, but at the same time, she needed to... Space. Yeah. Yeah. Which and, I can totally understand, right. the, the need for space. Well, me too. And there's something else I want to say about that, but I want to make this point first. The fact she moved around so much or left jobs largely because of the effect of predatory men helped add to her isolation and sense of rootlessness as well, I'm guessing. Her belief, I think she had a belief that no one was going to be there for her mm-hmm. because these men wouldn't leave her alone and I don't think that's really taken seriously. I think particularly if you're a beautiful woman, it's oh, not yeah. taken it's like, seriously. Oh, and like, if you're like her, where she's friendly and vivacious and isn't, you know, like you or I would be, like, get the fuck away from me, you loser. Because they are always destroying themselves. I know, I know. I can't get I'm, away from them, I don't and know. And I'm sure race played a role, too. It's difficult the way the film was put together to understand fully how it may have or maybe I just don't have the tools. Well, what was the ethnic background of the filmmaker? Was white. White, okay. Yes. Or maybe I just don't have the tools to put it together. But we're getting everyone's perception of who she is. But it's like that old story where the five blind guys are feeling the yeah. elephant. And one of them thinks it's a tree and one of them thinks it's a fire hose or whatever. And you add to that the fact that people's perceptions of a person are always colored by their own experience, including their gender and race. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, men in the movie aren't going to have particularly good insight into what factors weighed against her, both because of her looks and because simply she was female, you know, and a black female. So Mm -hmm. the men, even though, like, John, the Greek guy, seemed to be the most insightful, and there's a lot of stuff he said that's not in this, but I still think that they don't fully understand what it's like yeah. to be to be a woman and to be trying to negotiate how to get along with men and especially if you're a people pleaser like she was and try to make people happy and have people be happy around you but also you to get these guys the fuck away from me yeah. you know someone in the film i can't remember who and i think it was either Alistair or Alton Edwards um, says towards the end of it that she could never really be happy because she was always afraid her bubble was going to burst. And you get that way for a reason. But the other thing is, uh, if you're a person that suffers from depression, yes. anytime something good is happening, a lot of times all you can think about is that, yeah, it's good right now, but it's not. Or if you're Irish. going to be good. I know. <laughs> you but, know, like, but you know, you know, you know like, oh, oh, there's no... When is this going to end? Right. It's, yeah, it's just going to No end. good thing, or maybe yeah. Catholic, no good thing comes without suffering. Yeah. No good thing is going to last because you're going to have to pay for it in some way. But I think if there are any lessons to be learned from this, it's that perceptions of a person, even someone you think you know well, are based on your own filter and not always on who they are. Yeah. And that you can try a little harder to care, and I'm not saying that cliche that keeps coming up, oh, we have to reach out to people more, we have to be more aware of people. Because I look at it, I mean, I have friends I was close to, and it's not that they did anything wrong, or I don't care about them or anything, but your life changes, your circumstance change. And I don't fall, like one of the Ernst and Young co-workers says, I feel a little uncomfortable with the fact that after she left, I mean, we thought about her, we talked about her, but nobody ever reached out. But it happens all the time. Are we supposed to take every single person we're we're ever with for a period of time in our life and say, oh my God, I haven't heard from them in years. I better go find out if if they're dying in an apartment. If important to you as a friend, you will keep in touch. And if they're not, then it's not that you didn't like them. It's just that... And also this... You know, you only have so much time to give you, to people. You only do. And the older you get, the more 
friends you gather, the more places you've worked, the more people you went to yeah. school with. And there are people, you know, when I see them, I think it's great, and I think about them, and I think about getting together yeah. with them, but then you go months or years without... But there's a lot of people that I'm friends with. I feel like I'm close friends. And I think that happens with a lot of people, especially, as you said, when you get older. And, and I think a lot of people understand this. You can't spend every minute with these people, but when you see them again, it's just right. like you hadn't and it's, spent any and, time apart because you're good friends and you'll always be good friends, but everybody has their own lives. Right. And it's funny too, especially working like, you know, working at newspapers, you're, you're sitting with people, you, it's a high stress environment and there's a lot, and there's a lot you go through and you're with these people more than you're with your own family. It's weird and it wasn't planned, but the last three Saturdays, three weeks ago, I got together with some friends who I'd worked with at the Journal Tribune in Biddeford, Maine in nah. 1983 and 84. Then two weekends ago, I got together with friends that I had worked with at the Haverhill Gazette in 1985 and 86. Oh, wow. And then this That's past Saturday, nice. I went to a party of a bunch of people I worked with at the Union Leader in Manchester, New Hampshire for 25 years. And it wasn't planned. These things had so just So this weekend, are you getting together with... No. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. No, but, and it's funny, each of these groups, and I got a little mixed up in my head at some points, who I worked with, where, yeah. and stuff, but you can get together with people you haven't seen in 20 and years. And have a great time. And, have, and it's like no time had passed. And that's, but that doesn't mean you, if, when you don't hear from them, you need to be calling, ooh, uh, what's happening well, to Well, sometimes, I mean, I'm the type of person that I need to have time by myself. Me too. God. I don't want people yes. bugging me, and oh. I will... Fuck yes. Sometimes avoid seeing people that yes. I don't want to see. I have to tell you, living alone, <laughs> it was great to be able to go like a whole weekend or yeah. something without talking to another human to being. People. And it's not like, oh, that poor person, she went all weekend without talking to another person. It's like, I like to do that. And I think we all need times, and especially people who have whose brains work certain ways and stuff, you need times where you can just power down and not have to deal with other people. And and I would tell people, the more I have to deal with people, the more bitchy I'm going to be. Yeah. And that's, sometimes it's just too much. Well, but, when, but when I say, I was saying about if there's a lesson, it's to care about people. And I don't mean like, oh, you know, like yeah. what we were just saying. But more to try to get where people are coming from. Yeah. And don't make assumptions about people based, as hard as it, because we all do it, God knows I do, on superficial interactions or even your acquaint acquainted interactions yeah. with the person. Oh well people you work with and stuff you don't know. And and I'm not sure right. And I'm not sure what the solution But so I don't that, know with her there if there would have been if you would have been able to know who she was. If she she I well she to she, she really herself. She really carp compartmentalized her life. And she really people were a certain thing in her life and that's what they were, and they weren't part of this other part of her life. And it's funny, this documentary, because you get different impressions yeah, from like the different people. Yeah, like you were saying, the elephant, you know, analogy. Or... With her, I wonder if, yes, she could have lived longer, but I, 
I wonder if her life would have ended any differently. Well, yeah, and I think she had an asthma attack. Yeah, she might have died. Or it might have been complications yeah, I'm from that ulcer. Yeah, right. Natural causes, but it'd I'm be just saying, would she have? Fun to no matter she what point in her, her life she died, yeah, maybe someone would have found her sooner. But right. she lived alone. I know, and the horrific thing is more that she wasn't found for three years, and because nobody nobody noticed. Because anyone who lives alone could have an asthma attack or fall well, down. Well, we talked stairs. about that before. Right. Yeah. I have a friend who I worked with in New Hampshire who apparently died of a heart attack and fell down her stairs and, ah! s- and somebody found her a week later. Oh, the, the, and uh, she had lots of friends. And lots like, of acquaintances. But she was and her doggy. But we talked about that right. bef- in one of the, our other shows of the guy had, I worked with. We sent somebody because yes. of his job because he had a job. But if you don't... Like the woman I mentioned earlier was retired. She had moved to Maine. She lived in the country. She right. had... She was not friendly to her in neighbors. In fact, I had intended to look her up and talk a little bit about her and I just didn't have time. She was, she, well, it's there, you know, there isn't a lot to say. She was, yeah. she was not unfriendly, but she was standoffish. How long? How long it was it, years. Yeah. It was years as well. That's why it reminded me of this. It wasn't a matter. It was years. I can't remember how long. Yes. We have to look stand it up. Standoffish is a very rel- uh, relative term. Well, she, she, she was not totally unfriendly, but she didn't want to interact. And, and some of the her neighbors thought maybe she had some kind of a drinking problem or she had some kind of an issue where she just didn't want to deal with people. Right. Which And also... You know what? She moved to rural Maine. Right. And also, well, I was going to say Maine... She lived down a dirt road. She didn't right. want anyone and bugging Maine, her. Maine is the type of state that is people are friendly but they're friendly in a reserved way it's not and they're not the gonna South. they're not gonna keep coming after you right. to ask you people don't come knocking at your door for I mean, a like, cup of sugar for instance with me i mean i wave to my neighbors but right. like we talked about this before i don't I, oh yeah because we talked about it one of our other shows i mean i wave and say hi yeah. to my neighbors but i don't go over and, and say hi want to have a cup of coffee right. with me or something no i mean yeah i just don't I everyone's got their own lives they do it seems like the people do did care about her. Oh, her yeah. friends did care about her. The other Alistair guy is kind of an asshole, but they, well, but boyfriend, yeah. they, and also he's very self-absorbed. Yeah. But they, this whole thing, it kind of became this big thing. Oh, what's wrong with us as a society? And it's like she did not want to yeah. interact with people. Yeah, I mean. Like I said, it's, I mean... And I'm not saying that to criticize her. And I have another friend that that he he lived alone, died of natural causes. But he was, it was a while before someone found, I don't know how long it... And and actually not showing up... Not close, I mean, he was close to his family, but he had a job that wasn't where you're going, like my job, where you go to a, people expect you, blah, blah, blah. He kind of worked for himself. Right. So, uh... The same type of thing. It took a while before even family, even he was close. Right. To I was going to say the biggest thing is yeah. that your is your job. Yeah. That's the most likely way you're going to get found. Yeah. Because if you don't show up, and I'd say almost every place I worked, there was an incident of somebody going to knock on somebody's door, see if somebody and the thing was is home. though, and the, they were always there. You know. Well, I can tell you at my job, which I find odd, but the policy is if someone doesn't show up, they don't call them. Like, they don't call and say, where are you? Which is kind of weird, but that's what, apparently what they why do. Why is there a policy like that? The, the store, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't your, say... Wouldn't your boss, I don't know why. And the person would be like, oh shit, said, I overslept. Yes. Oh, oh, I didn't realize I was Because I have today, many times in. have said to people, where's so-and-so? Did anyone call him? And my boss will be like, no, we don't call them. So what happens? 
Well, usually it's a coworker that'll take it upon themselves to be like, where the hell are you? Like, usually if you're friends with your coworker, you text them or something yeah, and be weird. like, are you? But the company policy is we don't call weird, them. That's a bizarre policy. I don't understand that policy. Because yeah, I would say as a supervisor, I, I frequently would call people and I I don't know where they were. why, unless for some reason. I'll, I'll, every, it must be some every stupid weird, liability. Yeah, every weird shit. policy has come up. Anytime I have a question about why is this, this is really weird, somebody has sued them for something. Well, so, you know, just God only knows. Well, you know, whatever. People are litigious. I know they're they, litigious. You know what this story also reminded me of, which is not really related, but an interesting story. My ex-husband, his cousin, well, his, his mother's cousin. That Some relative. She was a psychiatrist in Chicago. She lived with her daughter. Her adult daughter, who, interestingly enough, had psychiatric problems. Well, she, <laughs> she, the woman died of natural causes in her home. The daughter lived with her. The daughter was in her 40s. She was there for like three months. Oh, there are a lot of stories like that. There was with one the in Boston. daughter living in the house There was with one her. in Boston, two, two elderly sisters who were a little weird living in this big mansion. And the one was found decomposed under the kitchen table by somebody who finally, they didn't let people in. They were... Um, from, it's actually an interesting story because the house had been like two, oh, these two families. No, oh, no, no. Well, it was because they all are, right? Yeah. But no, in the 50s, these two families, these two guys went into business together. And for some reason, they decided to buy this big mansion in Brookline. Oh, and both cool. of their families would live together. Oh, and like one of the mothers did all the housework and stuff. Hmm. And the other one was more of a business person. And there were the two men were business partners, but then there was a falling out and all this weird shit happened. But these two sisters from one of the families lived in the house and it was falling apart and they were both quote unquote eccentric and stuff. But, uh, I got to look that up, but a year or two ago, they found one of them. a show about Under them. the kitchen table. Oh, I remember reading like that. I read like too. the last one. Yeah. And then that, yeah, psycho. and then that, but that book smell. by that book by it was that story by either Faulkner or <laughs> Shirley Jackson. <laughs> yeah, I was an English major. A Rose for Emily. Oh, who you know that? with I think uh, it was Shirley Jackson. You know with the cor- corpse, yeah, the corpse Jesus. in the bed, and, and then that was Flannery O'Connor where they had that. The, the oh, maybe dead... this was a Flannery O'Connor. No, that was the one where they were driving the somewhere. Misfit. The... A good man is hard to find. Oh no, yeah, yeah. no, was the I'm getting it. I might be getting the Misfit mixed up. That one was where they shot. Yeah, but there, yeah, where they he didn't shot have a the grandma. Spoiler the alert! No, they didn't have a corpse in the car. There was a story you're, by you're, her. You're thinking of Mitt Romney? And a, no, the way she wasn't a corpse. Vacation? No, With no. Chevy Chase? No. Did they grandmother's corpse? Wasn't that... I was like, what about Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> Boy, there's a lot of things. Weekend wow. at Bernie's. Didn't they, they have a corpse in that? Yeah. See, now, oh we're making, now we're making light of this. No, no. It is weird. The smell is what people always talk about, though. Yeah, but I can when understand when you're and living in... That some was of, in the summer. I can understand, though, like in Joyce Vincent case, oh, you're yeah. living in an apartment complex. There's, there's these rubbish bins. And there's also slobs. And there's slobby yeah, there's people. And, slobs. you know, a lot of people don't know what oh, a decomposing God. corpse. But So that's yeah. the story for today. Yes, very good. And Thank you. And I'm doing the next one. You are. And mine is not going to be, it's not a murder, but no. it is a crime. It'll it is. And it's interesting, yes. And we don't have Matt today. He is coming back, though. We've ascertained, ask a lawyer. We have so many questions yes, that we have we do. to. But so it's time for recommendations. <laughs> Thank you.
So, We're, recently it was our favorite. Our favorite. One of our favorites. I can't say he's my very favorite because I don't like to pick it. Do you like picking your favorite But child? he's a huge influence. It and we're talking, birthday, of course, about Fries, Bob, Bob Dylan. Dylan. And he got a lot of shit for winning the Nobel. And one reason we're talking about him today is to collect because his... Because we love him. Because we love him. And don't turn this off if you don't like Dylan because... We're not gonna. We're we're gonna talk about some stuff here, but it, it'll be okay. I'm promising you. But he to collect his Nobel money, he had to do a Nobel lecture, and yes. he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. A lot of people who are flatheads or whatever don't understand why he would win it. But his lecture is really interesting, and he actually talks about his influences. As the article I read said called him eloquent. So. Yes, well, I listened to it, Ooh, and I too will call him eloquent. I have to listen to it and, I just read the article because I need to. Yeah, just, it's good. It's twenty six minutes long. So, and but he talks about his influences. Starting, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. I can't do it like Dylan would. I guess <laughs> I have to start with Buddy Holly. But then he talks about specifically Moby Dick, which all I remember is hating. But after listening to him talk about it, he's so engaging about it that I may read it again. I've read it twice. All Quiet on the Western Front and The Odyssey. And he he should have been an English teacher because he really brings those alive. But what I want to say about him and literature is that, you know, literature is a lot of different things. And just as all these things he brings and all these things about that were influences for him and he does it in a very entertaining way... He, I feel, as an artist, <laughs> me, <laughs> as an artist, yeah. he was a big influence. He's and, an influence on me. And, one of, and here's here's two of the, like, the I want to say the initial influences with him on me are he used words in a way, like when you're first, when you're young and you're first thinking about words and thinking about yes. what people, that was different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I can remember, for instance, hearing... The song Positively 4th Street, you know, you've got a lot of yes. nerve to say you are my friend. Well, some of our listeners may not know, you yes. know, uh, what about I'd rather see you paralyzed. Yes, yeah. And I remember <laughs> thinking as a young, as a young kid, you know, and you're hearing all this happy, you know, the Beatles and yeah. he influenced them in some ways. So thinking, wow, is he allowed to say stuff like that? And it was very <laughs> kind of eye opening. You know, because you're first learning about kind of the nuances of how people are saying things. And one of my favorite songs, and I don't have a favorite because there are so many, but Don't Think Twice It's All Right, which I don't even think I initially knew was his because we had it on a Johnny Cash album. Oh yeah, and there Mom was and another, somebody. Have. I mean, so many people. So have many done people that sang it, but I can remember thinking about the lyrics and. Trying to figure out, so wait, does he love her or doesn't yeah. he love her? And stuff. Yeah. So he, people, you know, the big knock on him you hear is his voice. I can't take his voice. I can't well, take I his love, voice. I love, I love his, his voice. voice. I don't think his voice matters. You know what's funny? I was thinking about that. There was a press conference or something where he said he thought he sang as well as... He said, I sing as well as Caruso or something. Remember yeah, that thing? Uh-huh. It, may, it might be in that in no documentary. It might be in there, but I've seen One of the best music documentaries. But I understand what he's saying. Because people, they're focused on a technical... I wish I could figure out what I want to say about his voice. I do love his voice. I like the way he sings. It's who he is. It's part of his art. Yes. It's like saying... It's like us. I don't like the way Vincent Van Gogh paints. Right. His paintings are okay, but I don't like his style. Well, and is every... I mean... And, and I just feel like, is every song you hear 
supposed to be this kind of generically pleasing It would tone. be really boring. And I don't find him difficult no, to listen to. I sing along. In fact, it's funny because on one of his more recent albums, The Tempest, there's this 14-minute long song, The Tempest, which is kind of the story of the Titanic, but it's really cool. Some of the stuff that happens, especially towards the end. Oh, well, I and I was looking it up today because I wanted to see when that album came out, and I got you know distracted by other things. But the first things that come up when you Google it are things like reviews that say, this song will make you wish you had been on the Titanic, <laughs> and things like that. And when I really started listening to it, I had loaded a whole bunch of stuff on my iPod, and I still had an iPod. I still have an iPod for when I was working a seasonal job at L.L. Bean this winter where you could listen to music as you worked. And I haven't had a lot of jobs where you can do that. Yeah. And I just loaded a bunch of albums on there. That song played a lot. And it's just this really neat song with all these different levels and layers and, and some really poignant moments but people just have this throwaway oh, it's 14 minutes of dylan uh, yeah. and it's like well you know then you don't have to listen to it but just because you don't want to listen to a 14 minute long song doesn't mean there's something wrong with the song you should critique it for what, what right this no first of all you already know what his voice sounds like so if you're critiquing it don't there's no reason to to diss his voice why don't you critique the the musicality of the song or the or what he's talking about, or anything. I don't even know if I even care and, about crit- crit- and, criticism. And one thing that goes back to him winning the Nobel Prize for Literature is he's a songwriter who's putting all sorts of different he's influences. A, and he's a very prolific writer who right. has been, and it influenced so many people. Right. And if but you, he puts all sorts of influences yes, from lit- yes, literature and music into his songs, and they're so more than just a lot of the pop, stuff they people are. listen to. And I and I do want to say too, for people who haven't been around as long as we have or don't know, when he when Like a Rolling Stone came out in nineteen sixty five, he yeah. changed the course of rock music. And maybe you don't know who he is or you're not familiar with his music, but I bet you no matter who your favorite musicians or rock stars are, they know who he oh, is. Yes. And they're familiar with his music, and they. And would... it's not just a thing that people say because everyone else is saying, "Oh yeah, I'm influenced by Dylan." Right. It's he's. I was thinking one of my one of the songs I really like because I was thinking when you said you didn't know it was his song when we were kids our parents used to listen to uh, and they probably still do but Ian and Sylvia yes. that, um the song if today was not an endless highway tomorrow, tomorrow. was a long time is and I song. love his version of it too yeah. but I had heard only theirs and my parents listened to a lot of folk music and stuff and we heard a lot of different people singing his songs before we heard him because they didn't really listen to right. him. We listened to him when we were well, older. Well, Liz, our sister Liz, our sister who's Liz a year did, older but, than us. But our parents did In fact, I bought Jimmy, our my younger brother, a Bobby Sherman album. Ah. And this would have been maybe 1971 or 72. <laughs> and of course, Liz was disgusted by it. She's a year older than me. Disgusted. And she was vacuuming and accidentally put it on top of a lamp and it melted. <laughs> And I had bought it for Jimmy. If you don't know, he's like, Judy, 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 do you you love me? And a few other things. Did he sing that? Yeah. Here Come the Brides. He was on a TV show, Here Come the Brides. I loved that show. And he was, I wouldn't like him now, but I liked him then. And I was 11 and I bought the album for Jimmy because (laughs) I wanted to listen to it. But Liz melted it. 
And Liz at the time was 12, but she read Crawdaddy and Cream Rolling and Stone. Rolling Stone. Yeah. And Crawdaddy. we shared a bedroom. <laughs> and I started listening to Dylan. And it was, you know... So, anyway, you were saying Mom and Dad didn't have a lot of Dylan albums. No, but most of the... They listened to Ian and Sylvia. Uh, who else? The, the King's Peter Trio. Paul Mary. Peter, Paul, Mary. And all those folks. Johnny Cash was friends Johnny with Dylan, Cash. so he sang a lot of Dylan And songs. they, yeah, so we heard a lot of his music without like, him singing. And even Olivia Newton-John. Yes. Had well, that. everybody sang his song. Like, there's a neat montage, musical montage in No Direction Home, which I strongly urge people who haven't yes. seen it. Because it's a great it is a good documentary, documentary by Scorsese about, and it's not like Dylan's life, although a lot of his life is in there, but it's more the story arc is when he went electric yes. and what happened there. And people there's, were very there's upset. A, they were. And there's a great montage of all sorts of different people and styles of music doing Blowing in the Wind. Yeah. And I think I was probably around and 12. Blowing in the Wind, I quoted that today, I, you know. On did Facebook. you say the answer, my friend, is Blowing no, in the Wind? No, but I said. Um, How many roads I, must a man. I'm sorry. I said. I was talking about because a year ago today, the day we're recording, was the shooting in Orlando. And I said that people, you know, remember this. And I said, to quote a Nobel Prize winner, how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? He was very precious. That's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. And a lot of people, but it's funny. There's a lot of people who quote unquote don't like Dylan, but... It, for instance, Adele covered one of his songs. Yes. And we're talking about Adele the singer, not Adele our niece or, or cousin. our cousin. And there are so many songs of his forever young. You know, so many songs of his that people have covered that people are not. And what one of the things that really bugs me is when somebody says, oh, here's so-and-so's song, blah, blah, blah. And it's actually a Dylan song yeah. that so-and-so Well, if you look, if, all you have to do is Google his, not bibliography, his song list. His song, whatever. And it'll say how many people have recorded and some of them are literally he, he's probably i would think one of the most recorded artists and he's so and i and you know when you're like 13 or 14 or whatever those are very impressionable years and in a lot of ways they set the stage for how you perceive things as an adult and in 1975 born to run because i'm a, also a big springsteen fan born to run came out and Blood on the oh, Tracks Blood on the Tracks came out. And that album has some of his biggest that songs. That album, I think, is Tangled Up in Blue, yes. Shelter from the Storm. And that and so Blonde on Blonde are the two I still listen yes. to the most today. I, and I it's love just, a Blonde on Blonde is probably the one I listen to the most. That's got it's got Rainy Day Woman twelve and thirty five, which is Everybody Must Get Stoned, which I I he's saying more than yeah he's saying more than smoke that. a joint. He's not even talking about that kind of stuff. And then that has so I think he's many playing good. on people's he's saying something else, but he's playing on people's simplicity yes. that they're gonna take it one yeah. way. He does that. But he that but I wanted to talk about him going electric, how people were angry about yes. it. And my feeling is, and I am not a, a musician, but I am a visual artist, and I think of someone like Picasso when you're thinking of Dylan, same type of thing where he explored different he did what he wanted he did what he wanted because when you're a true artist that is what you do you're not you don't give a shit if people like it or not you're thinking your mind is always working and you're like this is the next thing i want to try i want to try this i want to do this i want to do that and people either like it or don't right and it's he funny didn't owe anybody anything. he didn't owe anybody he anything do whatever well, the hell he wants and it's funny in no direction home he was when he first in the very early 60s and he was very young, came forward, he was like the darling 
of yes, the folk crowd Woody and the first Guthrie year right and protege right and his first year at the Newport Folk Festival and he's there singing with Joan Baez and it's all you know folky folky and then the next year he was experimenting more with what he was singing and like in this protest song workshop he's singing Mr. Tambourine Man yeah. and he's just got this little smirk on his face like they're all just sitting there um I'm singing a song that's not really a protest song, but they expect me to sing a protest yeah. song. Thing. Although at one point he goes, you know, they're all protest songs. But then my favorite part, I love Mr. and this is a spoiler if you haven't seen No Direction Home, a but spoiler. it's it's actually got a really good dramatic narrative arc to yes, it. Yes, it does. And it's such a well done documentary, but he's taken so much shit. He's on this European tour. He's getting booed. And at the very end, and he's just tired. He wants to go home. You know, he says, get a new Bob Dylan, you know, kind of thing. And they go on stage, and somebody in the crowd yells, Judas! And he turns to the band, which is the band, you know, Robbie Robertson. Everybody but um, Levon Helm Mm -hmm. wasn't there, because he thought they were going to get killed, so he didn't want to go. So they have Mickey Jones. But Dylan turns to the bands, and he goes, play it fucking loud! (laughs) And they launch into, like, a Rolling Stone, and it's just, it's just... Awesome. And that song, I remember, that's one of his songs from when I was young, because it was on Hearing the radio a lot. opening chords still gives it me chills. It was on the radio a yeah. lot. And it's a great, and it was, how, and it was quote, good It was, quote, song. too long, so when it was on a 45, they had to put the first half on the A side, oh, yeah. and the second half on the B side, because every song was only supposed to be like three minutes, yeah. and this was five something. That's one of those songs that you can remember hearing, and I felt the same way about Born to Run when it yeah. came out, that it's like, you hear it and you go... Wow! wow. Yeah. What what is that? Yeah, you know. And so anyway, so that's our tribute to Bob Dylan. We love Bob. We love Bob. He's Maybe we can. He listens. To he us he all does the listen time. to us. Yeah, we know that he does. We does. He he kind of keeps it on the down low because he doesn't. And our that. voices don't bother him at all. Yeah. Well, anyone who they do bother doesn't have to listen. That's right. What does their podcast sound like? That's right. Yeah. 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 I want to listen to your podcast. Yeah. Go get yourself a new podcast. You know, people, we were uh, talking about women's voices seem to bother people more than men's voices. I know mine does. Well, I think it's the pitch to, like, when I'm at work, when people page, first of all, they yell. (laughs) There's certain voices that really, like, it goes in your ear like, ah, when they're really loud, when they're really amplified. And it's it's younger, the younger women, sorry. Um, So maybe it were, were somehow evolve in our evolutionary thing that that we don't like women's but voices. it's funny that somebody on twitter mentioned and this is what i was saying all through this presidential campaign that people bitched about hillary clinton yelling when all bernie sanders and donald trump did was yell all the fucking oh. time as we know it's all right for men bernie to yell sanders sounds just like frank costanza <laughs> in the debate <laughs> jerry still and then like yeah. but donald trump yells i mean they it's both okay. are yelling yes but he, it's a New York. Thing. It's it's okay for men to yell. It's okay for them to express opinions. It's okay for but them. She couldn't even raise her voice without people. It's, her own, it's okay yelling? for them to take a stand about things. It's okay for them to differ. And it's okay other... for us now. Yeah, it is now that especially we're... now that we're old and don't give a fuck at right. all. Right, and we're our own boss. And you know what? I don't. I don't no. fucking care. But anymore. in any case, we should wrap this up. Yes, we should. You can check out our website, crimeandstuffonline.com, where you can find 
all our episodes, yeah. a way to subscribe, a way to donate. If you want to listen on that, which if you're you listening listen. to us, you've already figured out a way. You can also, if you're interested in podcasting or or if you have a podcast and getting professional statistics like we do, you can click on one of those links to Blueberry on there. Yeah, and Blueberry. And you can, you can like our Facebook page. You can, and you can follow us on Twitter at... Please Crime follow us stuff. on Twitter. You can follow us on Instagram. We don't have any followers yeah. on Twitter. No, we, we don't. Well, it's, you know, we're probably not hashtagging it right or yeah, whatever. I try, but and I'm on not Facebook. good at Twitter. I just started a few months ago. so I know. It's an now art. I am obsessed with it, Twitter. Though. Yeah, I have so many I've Twitter. I've given up Facebook. I have my personal Twitter account, my Cranky Editor. That's Cranky Editor 1. Twitter account. And cranky Editor stuff. 1. And you, oh, you, we should put a link to your Cranky Editor podcast. We will. Okay. We will. Because she is a podcast. Yeah, as we I discussed. mentioned it at the beginning. Yeah. And we're and our new podcast will be coming out soon. Groovy Tube. Groovy Tube. I'm really looking forward to that's gonna yeah, be a lot of fun. It's be fun. And the first, if you're in our generation or even a little bit younger. Yeah, yeah. Even if and you're not even if you're young. And the first season is going to focus on the Brady Bunch. Yes, the Brady Bunch. And the um then the I second season is going to focus on the Mod Squad. Yeah, and I've got some And ideas. by seasons, we don't mean you're going to have to wait a year to hear the second no, one. No, just whatever. Yeah. You know what it means. So I think that's it for this week. And mm. we'll be back next week with another. Yes. Thanks Bye-bye. for listening. International news, but I don't think that... What the fuck is this fucking piece of shit? <laughs> fucking computers. <laughs> okay, okay, there you go. <laughs> Was when she... <laughs> fucking... <laughs> when you're fucking... That's one reason to have the sound, sound on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <coughs> Jesus Sorry, fucking yes, Christ, as we say girl. in the... As we Catholics say.